Last week, as we're journeying through the book of Colossians, um, we had some very specific instructions. Employers were told to behave themselves and treat their employees right. Employees were told to do a good job, work hard. Children were told to obey their parents. Husbands were told to live like Jesus Christ. And wives were told to submit to their husbands. So how's it going this week? Aren't you glad God is patient with us? He absolutely is. But I say that we not test Him. I say that we do our very best to make sure that we are following the Lord Jesus Christ and all of His instructions. Now today, the instructions that God has for us are universal. That means no matter what role you play, no matter your income, your height, your sideways height, no matter your ethnicity, no matter your age, no matter any of that, uh, the instructions today are for you. These instructions are universal. They are what I like to call organic. What does that mean? Like vegetarianism? No. They're organic in the sense that they will touch the depth of your soul regardless of your circumstance or situation, okay? These do apply to you. Last week, not everyone's an employer or an employee. You're probably one or the other. You're probably, hopefully, either a husband or a wife, um, and there's not any confusion there, but you're not both. And so this week, the instructions are for you. And uh, we have, as our scripture today, Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. And if you have your Bible and would turn to Colossians chapter 4, we would appreciate that. And I would ask that if we have, uh, hey Ron, you think you might be able to check to see that the baptistry is not draining throughout this entire sermon? I don't know if you can stop it, but if not, you'll just have to really pay attention. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, I invite you to stand with me, please, in honor of the reading of God's Word. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Devote yourselves to prayer, stay alert in it with thanksgiving, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the word, to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains, so that I may make it known as I should. Act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this day, and we're thankful for this opportunity to read your word, instruct us through it, and we pray that you'd be honored and glorified by our obedience and faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. It's a brief passage today, which means that, of course, that the sermon will be brief, but at the expense of talking about how short the sermon will be, which... Uh, ironically makes the sermon even longer. Um, let's get into the text. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, again we read these words, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert 
in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. There's a few things, if we dig deep into this verse, that we understand about prayer. And the first is this. Prayer is a battle. Prayer is a battle. What do I mean by that? The very first word is devote yourselves to prayer. That means to give effort to prayer. It means to strive in prayer. Now, you might say, well, I, I, how do you do that? I thought prayer was easy. Prayer is very easy. Prayer is just talking to God. You know, now, a lot of people, uh, when, they're, when they're not used to praying, they are sort of uncomfortable praying. You know, not even just praying out loud. That's, that, that can be uncomfortable. But even just praying at all. It seems to be, seems to be strange. Uh, how do I know that God is listening? How do I know that I'm not just talking to the ceiling or, or talking to myself? You know, so what, what do I need to do to uh, pray and be effective in my prayers? But the more you learn to pray and the more you uh, try to pray, the more natural it becomes. Prayer is a battle. And we are to devote ourselves to prayer. There are times in your life when you will understand the necessity for fervent prayers. There are things that will happen, circumstances that will come, that will drive you to your knees and really cry out to God in prayer. In Acts chapter 12, verse 5, we read about one of those times. Peter was in prison. The leader of the church was in prison. But the church, that verse says, the church was praying fervently to God for him. The church understood that we're facing a situation unlike ever before, and we need to pray for our leader who is in prison right now. There are times when you will engage in some type of activity or something will come upon you that you think there's no other way out of this but to pray. And I must seek the Lord. Let me ask you a question. What is it? that would cause you to battle in prayer? What is it that would cause you to get serious and strive in the heavenly realm? Now, I'm not sure how you feel about recent events, but it seems very apparent to me that I cannot imagine another time in my life when children were under more attack than they are right now. From the horrific shooting in Uvalde, where a man, a young man, engaged in some type of demonic activity, whether or not he recognized it, whether or not he called it by that name, there was a man who did something so horrific that it caused great tragedy to an entire community and the entire nation and even the world noticed. What's gonna, what is it that's going to cause you to battle in prayer? I think about what's going on with children today. You have incidents like that. You have children at schools at libraries, at other social events, 
openly being groomed by pedophiles. It's sickening. And the government does nothing about it. It's out in the open. It is time, I believe, for God's people to stand up and fight for the sake of the children. We're talking about your children. We're talking about your grandchildren. We're talking about your neighbor's children. Are they not worth us striving in spiritual battle for? And if they are not worth that, I I have no idea what is. None whatsoever. We must engage in a spiritual fight. And we must use the spiritual weaponry that is available to us in this battle. We need to understand something that you'll never see on the news, something that you'll never see talked about publicly, but we know to be true that there is a spiritual battle going on in a spiritual realm, a realm in which we are a part. And we can either sit on the sidelines and do nothing, or we can get up off of our pews, get up off of our rear ends, get on our knees, and really begin to pray. Really begin to pray for God to do miraculous things. For God to be glorified. For the children to be protected. We have parents, mind you, parents who are taking their children as young as five years old and encouraging surgeries to try to change their sexuality. A gift that God has given each one of us they want to destroy, doing irreparable harm to these children. What is it that's going to cause you to get serious and to go into the battle of prayer? Prayer is a battle. We must devote ourselves to prayer. Just as much as we might devote ourselves to any other cause, we must devote ourselves to prayer. The verse continues to say, keeping alert in it. What does that mean, to keep alert in it, to stay alert? In prayer, it means be informed. It it means being mentally alert. It means that we have informed prayers, not just prayers of generalities, God protect the children or God do bless the world, but we have informed prayers. No matter what the prayer request is, try to be informed about it, knowing the circumstances of the request, knowing how it might affect the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must be informed. Prayer is a ministry. We're told to stay alert, just like Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. I want you to imagine that Garden of Gethsemane. If you've never been to Jerusalem, the Garden of Gethsemane is up on the Mount of Olives. It's not all the way to the top, but the Mount of Olives is just to the east of the old city of Jerusalem. And so you have the old city of Jerusalem, and then you have this valley, and then you have the the Mount of Olives, and a part of that Mount of Olives is the Garden of Gethsemane. And so here's Jesus and the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, surrounded by incredible olive trees in the quietness of that garden. And Jesus compels his his, his disciples to pray. He asks them to stay alert, to stay awake, 
The hour is at hand. This is it. This is it. What, what we've been building up for. This is why we traveled all the way from the Sea of Galilee, all the way down here to Jerusalem. We've come for this moment. Stay alert and pray. Pray with me. And you know that every one of them fell asleep. And Jesus woke them up again and said, pray, pray. And they fell asleep again. And then a third time, Jesus wakes them up and he compels them to pray. And he says, they're coming. And you can see almost in your mind's eye the torches and the crowd and the soldiers that are coming down from Jerusalem down into that valley and up the hill to arrest Jesus. They're coming. They're here. They're here. And Jesus' disciples were not alert. They didn't stay alert in prayer. How often are we distracted by unimportant matters when the critical things require us to be people of prayer? Prayer gives us victory, though. When we see the hand of God moving, when we see a life changed, and we see a person be baptized, we see someone who makes a radical change of life, we see a grown adult set on their way, set on their way to destruction, following the broad path that leads to destruction, and that person engages with the Lord Jesus Christ and is changed. We see a miracle happen with the changed life, and that causes us to have thanksgiving. We have victory, and we express it with thanksgiving. You see, God's answers give us grateful heart. God's answers give us grateful hearts. If God answers your prayer, don't forget to say thank you. We must say thank you. We are called to be people of prayer. In verses 3 and 4, we're called to be God's witnesses as well. Paul asked for prayer for him. He says praying at the same time for us as well. What's Paul doing? Paul and a few partners are engaging in the mission. They're taking the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever they can go. They're sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. When possible, they're starting churches. At this point, Paul is literally imprisoned. He is literally in chains. Some of his freedoms have been taken away, but not his freedom to speak. And so even there, in chains, he's sharing the gospel. He wants, them, he wants the church at Colossae to pray for him as well. Why? Here's Paul imprisoned. He's in chains. He's next to a Roman guard. A guard is chained to him 24-7. What does Paul pray for? Does Paul say, pray for my release? Pray for my freedom? No. Paul says, pray that God will open up a door. He will open up to us a door for the Word. For the gospel, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. Paul prays for an open door. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9, Paul, in another situation, writes, Because a wide door for effective ministry has been opened for me, yet many oppose me. You and I, we ought to be like Paul. We ought to be looking for opportunities to 
go through an open door and share Jesus with somebody else. Look for doors where you can tell people about Jesus. They're all around you. It happens every day if you look for them. We need to be a true witness. Paul says, for the word so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. What's the mystery of Christ? We covered this in a previous sermon in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18 and so. The mystery of Christ is essentially this, that through the cross of Jesus, by Jesus dying on the cross, God did something for humanity. What was it God did? God enabled humanity to come together. No longer Jew on one hand and Gentiles on the other hand, but through the cross, not only are Jews part of God's people, but through the cross, so are the rest of us. The rest of us can become part of God's family too. And that was a great mystery that was not revealed until Christ himself revealed it to Paul on the Damascus Road and revealed it to the other apostles as well. Our witness needs to be clear. Paul writes, For I have been in prison that I may make it clear in the way that I ought to proclaim it. I need to make the gospel clear. You know, we must tell people about Jesus in a way that they can comprehend the message. That's what God did with us. Do you realize that? That God took the message of Jesus Christ and he made it understandable to you. Did God say this? You know, if you really want to know how to get to heaven, you better learn Hebrew and learn Greek because that's what my Bible is written in. Is that what God did? No. Because a whole lot of us, myself included, would be in a world of hurt. What did God do? God made sure that we could understand His message in our language, in our vernacular. Okay? So not just the Queen's English, Texan English too. When we share the gospel, we need to make it understandable. The best we can. And God will bless the rest. God did this for us. So not only are we called to prayer, we're called to be good witnesses for Jesus, we're also called to have God's wisdom. Look at verses 5 and 6. Really verse 5. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Literally, I love the way it literal, literally reads, Literally, it reads this way. In wisdom, be walking. I love that. In wisdom, be walking toward outsiders. That's how it literally reads. What a beautiful idea. It's like we're bathed in wisdom. And so we engage outsiders in our wisdom. We act wisely toward outsiders. Making the most of the opportunity Redeeming the time, some translations say. This idea of redeeming the time, it means to buy it back. It's this idea that you have this precious gift that God has given you. It's called time. And we all have the same amount of time. The time that we have right now is given to every one of us. Now some of us will have a lot more time to do the things that we want to do because we simply live longer than others. But the reality is, 
This day, every day that you live, you have the same amount of time as everyone else, 24 hours. And so the time is a resource. You need to understand this. It is a resource that you buy back, that you redeem like a coupon. It literally means this, exploit the time. Now, when you and I talk about something being exploited, it it usually has a negative connotation. But here, we have this thing called time, and we exploit the time. We take every opportunity to use it for God. We have every opportunity. We take every opportunity to be wise in the way we engage outsiders. Some of this is simple time management, but it's time management with a twist. It's not just time management to get done all the things on your to-do list, the grocery shopping and and the lawn mowing and everything else. It's much more than that. It is time management with someone who's filled with the Spirit of God, who sees every opportunity to glorify God some way. And so you control that time that is given to you. Don't let it control you. Your attitude should be, today, this is my day that I'm going to live for God. This is my time. I'm going to use it right. I'm not going to miss the chance to use this 24 hours that God has given me. I'm not going to waste it doing unnecessary things, I'm going to do what I can to honor my Lord. Ephesians 5.16 adds a phrase to this. These are two sister books, very similar in many ways. Ephesians 5.16 says this, Making the most of the time because the days are evil. Again with the understanding that we are spirit-led people engaged in a spiritual war against evil. Make the most of your time as you walk in step with the Spirit. And you know, when you learn to do this, that's when your Christian life becomes a lot of fun. Your entire Christian life becomes a ministry. The surprises that you didn't think were coming that day become God surprises. It becomes opportunities, divine opportunities for you to minister on behalf of the Lord. And then finally in verse 6, we have this instruction about speech. Your speech must always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. What's that mean, gracious speech? It means don't be ugly. Don't be, don't be harsh. Don't be rude. Okay, these are not qualities that are from the Spirit of God. Be gracious with your speech. If you have a criticism that must be shared, you can do it in a gracious way. It's possible. And so look for opportunities to be gracious with your speech. And it said, as though seasoned with salt. What does that mean, seasoned with salt? I won't bore you with all of the details, but it essentially means this. Your speech needs to be effective. Effective, gracious speech. You know, you can be right 
and lose people. You know, some of you are nodding your head. Yes, physician, heal thyself. You can be right and lose people. But don't be boring. Don't be bland with your speech. Be tasty. Be nutritious. Leave people wanting more. Don't show this next picture yet, Renee, but I, I want to introduce it first. Um, there's a guy on TV that I love to watch from time to time. His name's Robert Irvine. He's a, he has a show called Restaurant Impossible where he goes in and he fixes up a restaurant, really fixes up people that are bad managers of restaurants, and, and he changes all this stuff around. But at the beginning of his shows, he always wants to be served f the food that they serve. And so he wants to be a critic of the food that they serve. And often, very often, these, uh, these, these cooks that think they're chefs will bring him some food that's just, it's not tasty at all. There's no salt to the meat. There's no flavoring. And very often, it causes him to look like this. where he'll spit the food out, or at least stuck out his tongue, and just go, bleh. Listen to me. I wanted to show you this picture. Not because I'm promoting his show. I want to show you this picture because that's how you make people feel when your speech is ungracious. Don't be ungracious. Sarcasm is not a gift of God. Harshness, crudeness. Don't try to cover it up by saying, well, it's true. Listen, nobody listens to you, whether it's true or not, if you make them feel like that. So we must be gracious with our speech. And this, this can take some some time for us to understand. It can challenge us. When you and I have a commitment to gracious speech, that will provide us with how we answer other people, with what we say. Look at this again. Your speech must always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. How do I respond to people? You respond on the basis of grace. Your, gra your gracious speech, if you have a commitment to gracious speech, then that will inform how you respond to people. Conduct yourselves with wisdom. These verses are the way Christians ought to be. Prayerful, witnessing, wise, gracious speech. Does that sound like you? I hope it does. I hope in the honesty, humility of your heart you can say, I think so. I think I'm prayerful. I think I'm witnessing. I think I'm wise. I think I have gracious speech. But maybe, maybe one or more of these you think, oh, not so much. Not so much. And if today you're listening to this message and you're thinking, and you're not a Christian, and you're listening to this message, you might, you might even say, you know, preacher, I don't know many Christians like that. 
The Christians like that, hey, they're, not, they're not like that at all. They're not prayerful. They don't tell others about Jesus. They're not very wise. They're not very gracious when they talk. And if that's you, if, if you would say, I'm not a believer, and I see all these other believers, so-called believers, and they don't act that way, here's my challenge to you. Why don't you become what they should be? Why don't you become what they should be? I mean, after all, there are people that you will come across who call themselves Christians, who are not prayerful, they never tell anyone about Jesus, they're unwise and they're mean-spirited. Are they really Christians? Well, I don't know. Not for me to judge, but I know they're a long way from being where they need to be. The reality is they might not even be Christians at all. You can become a Christian. You can become like Christ. You can become transformed. How? If today you're not a believer, but you would say in your heart of hearts, you know that Jesus Christ is Lord over all. And you'd be willing to trust him, knowing that he died for you when he died on the cross. He died for your sins, to pay for your sins. And he rose from the grave to make you right before God. If you'll trust him and you'll confess him as Lord, he'll receive you to himself. And you can become a follower of him as well.